If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome to the Just Not Sports Podcast. This is the show where a few guys who work in sports interview people who play and cover sports about anything they like. Just Not Sports. Uh, Welcome to 2017. It is a new year for the podcast, and to kick off the new year... It's right around playoff time. College football's national championship is coming up. And we are going to celebrate that by doing a very long interview with Spencer Hall, or Every Day Should Be Saturday, about Buffalo, the American Bison, and violence in the game of football. Uh, But before we do that, I am your host this week, Gareth Hughes. Brad Burke, the normal host, has been out for a minute and we can get to that. I'll let him tell that story actually when he rejoins us. <laughs> but in the meantime, uh I'm gonna do the intros my way, which is very short. Uh Adam Millard, Joe Reed, Merry Christmas, happy holidays, happy Hanukkah, happy Kwanzaa, and a happy new year to both of you. Welcome to the new year on Just Not Sports. Joe Reed, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing great. We did, um, we did Christmas at my sister's place, uh, in Columbus, Ohio. I got to spend a ton of quality time with my niece who is awesome. Shout out to Margo, who's going to turn one here in a few days. Um, and just had a bunch of good family time, watched a bunch of good movies and, uh, really enjoyed some time off from work. It was great. Best movie you watched over the holidays. Best movie I watched over the holidays would be the last one we watched, which was Hell or High Water. I don't know if you've seen mm, that or heard I of it. I want to see that. Yes, I am it was aware very of good. that movie. Um, yeah, two brothers, Robin Banks. Don't, you know, you got to kind of figure out why. And then it's this sort of, uh, you know, the local deputies chasing them down. It was very well done, beautifully shot. Um, yeah, I, I, I really loved it. If To our listeners, go on Amazon or Google, Google Play, Google Movies, you can get 99 cent rentals through like the end of January. We paid, we paid a buck for it. Just so, just Google it and uh, or we'll, we'll tweet out a link maybe. But yeah, it was awesome. It was a great movie. So Adam's vacation lasted another minute because Joe Reed got that first question. But Adam, how were your holidays? Restful. Yeah, it was a good time. Did you watch any movies? And if so, what was the best one you watched? I went and saw two movies at the theater, the new Star Wars movie, Rogue One. Mm-hmm. I also saw Fences with Denzel Washington. Ooh. Uh, it would be How hard. was that? Uh, outstanding. It was really good. That is cool. I got the screener for that, uh, you know, humble brag. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and we've only watched a few so far and have not gotten to that one. So I will move it up the queue. I did not How, love Rogue One, though, if I can say that. Can I say you that? You didn't love Rogue One? You can say I did that. Not, I did not love it, man. I was. I got out of that movie, and I was with three other guys, and two of them loved it. And I said, I don't know if I love that. And Jack, shout out to editor Jack Porrible, turned to me and goes, yeah, man, that movie was uh, shiny things whizzing around for about two hours. And I was like, exactly, man. I don't know how much more I need from star wars at this point in my life i'm sorry to sound wow. like a killjoy yeah i know but i rewatched guardians of the galaxy the other night and i was like this movie is awesome that i'm looking forward great. to that sequel i agree <laughs> so 
Um, all right. Well, I'm glad we all watched some good movies over the holiday. I would like to give a personal recommendation for Arrival. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah. I want to see it real bad. Arrival is tremendous. And I will say that Moonlight is the best movie I've seen in a theater since maybe 2004. And that I'm not joking. Whoa. So, yeah. Moon's as good as advertised. That that movie made me reevaluate a lot of my own professional choices and question how big a fraud I am. And I say that as a very high compliment. So. Oh, I never I never questioned that. I always knew. <laughs> oh, guys, it's early in 2017, but that's that late 2016 banter that we've all come to know and love. Uh, so actually, that is one of the things I had written down here. Before we get into this episode, I, I was out with a friend. I got some really nice compliments about the podcast over the holidays. And... Two of them involved Adam. One was, hey, I've gone back and listened to your entire run. I really like it. I emailed Adam Willard about a shirt. Can you have him get back to me? Because you gave your <laughs> phone number out in, I think, episode 16. So uh, this will be the last time that offer is good. But if you have any more shirts, hit up my boy Vin. All right? Yeah, he te- he texted me, uh, and I said I'd take care of him. So no All right. Whoa, the other- yeah, look at that. The other one was I went out with my friend Caitlin in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and she and I were sitting at the bar, and she was complimenting me on us on the podcast. It was very sweet. And I was asking, like, did you listen to this interview? Did you listen to that interview? And then she said, yeah, I I listened to the interviews, but I like the banter more. I was like, oh, that's awesome. She was like, Brad, he's your he's your friend from growing up, right? He kind of hosts the thing. I was like, yeah, that's Brad. And she's like, Joe Reed, he sounds like the young guy, right? I was like, yeah, that's that that's Joe Reed. She goes, Adam. She goes, Adam's voice is like honey. I was like, I know, Caitlin, he's got a great voice. He did some VO work for me. We worked together on a piece. She's like, oh, his voice is incredible. And then she leaned in really close to me and she said, is he gay? Because his voice is almost too good. <laughs> True story. Really True story. Yes. I, I told her you have a girlfriend and that uh, I, I, don't, I was like, well, sadly, I guess he has a girlfriend. So he's unavailable to both you and the entire gay population. But that yeah. was I don't I don't. Can you can can you elaborate a little bit? What does his voice is too good? He must be gay mean. Well, Caitlin, if you're listening, you know how to get in touch with me. If you would like to come on the podcast and talk to Adam about this. I am happy to have that conversation. And I hope Adam is happy to have that conversation too. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm really curious about what that means. Um, thanks. Yeah. yeah. So, um I, I mean, I hope you guys don't mind. I wasn't going to do hammers tonight. I was just going to interview you, but we could just have Caitlin be our hammer uh in, in, in lieu of the normal segment. So, Caitlin yeah. Come on, Just on Sports, and explain how you thought Adam might be gay based on the quality of his voice. So, I mean, speaking of hammers, I am a power top, but in a totally heterosexual <laughs> way. Wow. That is tremendous stuff. Um, all right. So he, here's how we, I wanted to do the show tonight, guys. Uh, this interview I did with Spencer Hall about a month ago, it was one of those, as we're booking guests on the show, as – Adam and Joe and Brad, if you were here, could attest to there is a lot of just 
throw shit against the wall and see who writes back. And Spencer Hall had written, he writes for SB Nation. He had written a long form back in September about violence in the game of football as viewed through the lens of the American Buffalo. I loved the piece. Um, it probably crossed your Twitter feed if you follow sports at all. It was on a gajillion top 10 lists. So for now, let's get started in rolling the interview. It's long. Um, about halfway through, for purely self-indulgent reasons, you will hear me do a reading from Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian on Buffalo. And then at the conclusion of the interview, I want to ask you guys some questions about it, about and about football and our relationship to it as a sport. Does that sound all right? Yeah, sounds great. Let's do all it. Right. Let's do it. Cool. Twenty seventeen, trying some new things. Here is Spencer Hall on Buffalo or the American Bison. Joining us now is Spencer Hall, who you may know by the name Every Day Should Be Saturday or EDSBS. Spencer is the editor of EDSBS.com and a contributor to SBNation.com, and his Twitter feed is an essential fall follow that has almost single-handedly swayed me to get back into college football. All of Spencer's writing and gif work is worth a read and a look, but we're here today to talk about two pieces in particular that he published this fall. One we'll touch on is about football's declining ratings and the NFL's refusal to come to grips with simply being a content company. But the main topic we're here to discuss is Buffalo or the American Bison. Uh, Spencer, you published a piece simply titled Buffalo back in September. And it was one of the best metaphors for the majesty, violence, and inherent doom to the sport of football that I've ever read. And one that, frankly, I can't get out of my head three months later in December. So welcome. And I guess I'll start by saying what drew you to this symbol of the American Bison or Buffalo as a way to talk about football? The simple answer is I went to Montana for the first time Mm -hmm. this year and went to Glacier National Park. On the way, if you drive a certain way, you pass the the National Bison Range. Mm -hmm. The long answer is I've always been fascinated with them as animals Yep, and and never really had a way to write about them. Mm -hmm. They're there and if you get a chance the 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 book that i uh, i use as kind of background for this is a book called american buffalo okay uh which is uh about this guy who uh goes out and and actually hunts one because he gets a like a, contemporary a like, yeah like yeah Ameri- okay. Ameri- it, it's it's uh, by steven ranella and okay. ranella is kind of a Renella is very much it, like into the and one of the big figures in like the ethical carnivore movement. He's mm-hmm. a hunter. He gets very excited talking about shooting animals, which is the weirdest part of the book, frankly, is that he gets so geeked about it. Everything else is everything else speaks for itself. It's somebody who really wants to talk to you for a long time about buffalo. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And is really good at it, right? I think a lot of authors who can carry book length narratives are at least somewhat on the spectrum because they like to speak at length about a topic that they don't even really care 
if anyone else is listening, they just feel compelled to talk about it, right? Amen to yeah, that. This, yeah, this, this book very much. Podcast. Yeah, hey. Yeah, welcome so, to the podcast. Yeah, yeah. But this book very much has that because uh, it, it documents how he applies for a license through the lottery for the Alaska buffalo hunt. There is one wild and truly wild in terms of unfenced buffalo herd in North America or mm. in, in America, the United States, and it is in Alaska. And he applies and lo and behold, gets a ticket, you know, his like golden ticket, the wins the lottery, gets a shot, <laughs> uh, both literally and figuratively to hunt a, a buffalo. And it's gripping because he goes through an explanation of, you know, what role it had in American history. Mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of where you can lose some people is <laughs> you explain anytime you try to explain American history, it's difficult to do through a person. I think people and I'm certainly guilty of this. They function much better if you explain things in terms of, of a symbol or an animal than a person. And so when I went to Montana, I had already had them on the brain and had been fascinated by them for years and had never seen one super close. Mm-hmm. There are buffalo all over the place, by the way. Once you start looking. Yep. Uh, and when I say buffalo, by the way, that's fine. You can say bison. Yeah, you, you make that point in the piece that uh, the American bison or bison uh, is, I think you say, the correct pronunciation. That is the actual name of the animal, correct? Right. It is It is a bison. It's. it's mm-hmm. That's the species name. However, it, the American Buffalo Society basically admits you can use it interchangeably. It's in mm-hmm. their name. When they use it, right. it's what we use to refer to it. I don't, I don't get overly picky, and I go back and forth. That's but in for, that way, North Dakota State does have a more taxonomically correct nickname than Colorado. Correct? They are definitely close because Colorado buffalo could technically extend to water buffalo. It's a, it's a more Catholic term by Got definition. It. Yeah. it's a bigger umbrella if you're talking buffalo. Bison, bison are bison are the mascot of a number of universities, including mm-hmm. North Dakota State and including Howard. Oh. Who uh, Howard, and I looked this up for the piece, Howard got their name and their mascot because a guy who led their football renaissance in, I believe, the late 20s and early 30s was a member of the Buffalo Soldiers, an all-black uh, uh, unit in World War I that took its inspiration from the original Buffalo Soldiers. So that's how it, that's how it carried forward, right? There's a lot of... There's a lot of weird links between bison and buffalo and and how they and football in terms of not just symbolism but in terms of literal labeling and participation. It's the spread west of football. If remember football started in the Ivy League and then eventually sort of swept west, one of the key figures involved in it was Teddy Roosevelt right. in that expansion and promotion of it as a sport. Teddy Roosevelt himself, a huge hunter and somebody who became a bit of a conservationist. The, the motivations for his conservationism are kind of, you know, weird and debatable. You, you, I think you do a really good job of outlining that in the piece and presenting Roosevelt not as an idealized sort of Mount Rushmore figure if we're talking Western symbolism and just that he was a – he's not an uninteresting man. He, like, he can be an interesting guy, but he – his obsession with violence really comes through in your article in a way that I think sometimes gets glossed over or uh, violence gives way to more of conquest and adventure. Whereas in reading this, you start to think of like, boy, he dug – 
some pretty gruesome shit. So he he enjoyed killing things. There's yeah. really <laughs> there's really no way to get around it. Mm-hmm. He enjoyed killing things, and that's I think that's one thing where it's interesting to read. And and I I, I would encourage anybody who uh, enjoys eating as much as I do to, <laughs> to really look at, you know, what you're eating and kind of at least have sort of a general ethos about how you do it. You know, right. we're getting way off topic. I swear I'll, I'll pull it back, but like Ranella, Ranella outlines, you know, a pretty, a good solid case for an ethical carnivore omnivorism. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, other very famous cases where if you're being, you know, totally honest about your beliefs and totally consistent with them, then, you know, you'll end up being vegan. That's fine. I I think it's like a cool debate to have. You should definitely think about it. Right. Right. You know, it's because it's one of the three or four basic activities you do every day. So you you might as well, like, you're never going to stop eating. Right. We can stop watching football. Okay. Maybe like I can, I could stop watching football. It would, it would like, I think it would provoke a crisis, like a serious like existential well, that would, crisis that, that would change your quality of life but not while, eating would while. effectively end your life or like I'm, it's something you should explore your relationship with right right so when i when i got out to montana i think this is already brewing and it's it's just been a, a shit year period yeah. right so i was not really in a, a very good place to begin with um you know and it got worse uh later on but yeah, which is fine. Bad mm-hmm. years happen. But I wasn't really in sort of a place where I wanted to think about, you know, I, I try to do an opener every year and mm-hmm. I don't know how long I'll do them. Um, I try to do them if I have something to say. And uh, fortunately for the pieces purpose, you know, going to Montana, which I went by myself. If you haven't vacationed by yourself, do it. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't I didn't really go with anybody. So I just ended up hiking alone around Glacier, although you're never really alone. Like, you know, you say Glacier National Park. Now there's like a, a person every five minutes, you know, right, right. I, I, I always thought like after a day or two, I thought, well, if I get mauled by a bear, then at <laughs> least somebody will find my fresh corpse. Right. right It'll right. be new. They'll know what happened. There won't be any investigation. They'll be like, well, this dude was definitely ripped in half by a bear. Right. But going to Montana, you know, I already had that on the brain. And mm. when you go to the you see them along the road when you go you know, up to Glacier, but coming back, there's the National Bison Range. And I thought, oh man, I should just, I should just pop in. Right. right? I should just, I mean, what the hell? It's 12 miles You're out here. of the way. You've already gone to Montana. Why not? Right. And you know, once you, when you, you go, what's another 12 miles out of the way, mm-hmm. you know? So you go through these tiny little, extremely archetypical looking montana farm towns you know that have water towers and you pass guys on the road who are toting enormous bales of hay on tractors going 35 miles an hour Mm. and then you get to the national bison range and the national bison range is a road like a series of circuits or roads through this you know fenced off area where they just let them roam Mm. and they can get really close to your car Mm -hmm. like yellowstone close like in that was the first time I'd seen them. And I was one of, I think I saw another car pull in when I was there. I was the only one there. Mm-hmm. And wow. there wasn't even a, there wasn't even a ranger. It was closed, but the, you know, the gates open. So I, I went in. So this is as close to the sort of early mid 19th century wild habitat as exists for bison at this point. Um, I don't know if I, I think it is, 
it is an open environment for them. I, I don't know if it's as close. Like I, you say that by the way, people right, like, with cars you, and people. Right. Yeah. When you get into it, it's funny because you know you say things, and I every every email I got in response to the piece that was either a correction or a uh, and there were corrections. Like I got some things like just wrong yeah. in it. Um, but every single email I got was always with the greatest generosity and spirit because people who are into this stuff are super fucking into it. Like they are really, they are devoted. They are particular, they are passionate about it. So I had a guy who worked at the bison range, uh, correct, like make a little minor correction. And in addition to that was like, I got transferred out of there and it was the biggest mistake of my life. Right. <laughs> like, he, like he's like, I really would love to go back. Like I'm going to see if I can get back and get my job at the bison range back, you know, cause this is a good job, but I really enjoyed it out there. So you can, you can just drive up and, and chill for a minute. So I kind of put the radio on and listen to Montana NPR for a minute, talk about gubernatorial races and scandals about using, you know, private planes and, mm-hmm. you know, which evidently you have to do if you're governor of Montana, cause you yeah. can't get everywhere. Oh yeah, uh, that's, that's that's a lot of space to cover. Yeah, yeah, you need like uh, you need like a pretty good beachcraft to get around the yeah. state at minimum. So uh, I'm sitting there listening to it, and then I realized I wasn't really listening to it anymore. I mm-hmm. was just kind of sitting there and not hearing anything because there were three of them, and they were just moseying by my car and standing there for a second. And they're extraordinary. They're <laughs> that. That's what I wanted to ask. Like you for this year are the guy to talk to if you want to talk about Buffalo. Um, Tell me about them physically and what just being around a a Buffalo was like. They are first a different color than you would think. How would you, how would you just describe it based on pictures you've Uh, seen? I'm thinking, Chocolate brown with a big shaggy ring of hair around what would be the shoulders. Yeah, it kind of. Yeah. If you go to the Eiffel Tower, I love this effect of photography and, you know, the the, the visual age that mm-hmm. things are never quite the color that you think they're going to be right. or they can surprise you. Like the Eiffel Tower is – the Eiffel Tower is actually kind of this cocoa color. It's mm-hmm. a it's a beautiful color. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of things in Paris are like that because it just doesn't photograph quite as well uh, as it doesn't really represent on camera what it looks like. Right. Um, right. If you go to, you know, if you go to Angkor Wat and you go to like you look at the green there, the green there is a different shade than mm-hmm. you'll see in photographs. Right. The stone pretty much looks like the stone. It looks like old and weathered, you know, rained on. That's that's perfect. But the green, it's like Cambodia is the greenest place I've ever been. It's 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 like verdant doesn't start to cover it. It's this nuke green in the sunlight. That's you know just it's it's inescapable. When Mm. you see a buffalo for the first time, a buffalo is um, a buffalo is kind of this like chocolatey color, but it's shimmery. Like Mm. it's especially in the sun, um, it's it's like the darkest dark with it's like the darkest dark brown you can represent that actually has flecks of like reflective color in it um it's it's an unreal sort of color like i just stared at that for a while Mm -hmm. they are they are in posture sort of slightly ticked off all the time (laughs) like they just look like the biggest angriest swollest dude at the gym who isn't over five eight because they're really not big animals they're very tall they're they're very dense in fact i think half of their muscle mass um 
half of their muscle mass is shoulders up by weight. Wow. So they, they just have this enormous head, shoulder, and back complex of muscles supporting everything, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for, for purposes of fighting, uh, you know, for purposes of just holding that enormous head up. Once right, you, right. Once you built a battering ram, it has to have this like entire superstructure of muscle surrounding it. This is another thing where Ranella is really good because Ranella, Ranella teaches the anatomy of the buffalo as he's butchering the one buffalo he does bag. Mm-hmm. And it's extraordinary because it just sounds like it sounds like this perfectly designed machine uh, that was built to just tolerate cold and violence and lightning, right? And Jesus. and 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 you know the deprivations of being on the open prairie. It's 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 just impervious to everything that it has evolved to face. Mm-hmm. And and when you see that, you know you. Like I had this moment where you look at it and, you know, you can sort of really appreciate it. You go, this is a thing born of violence. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a thing. It's a thing born. Uh, it's a thing born of violence, you know, m- millennia old, right? Violence. It's, it's this thing that has been carved to its environment to uh, an element that, you know, you would say is perfection, but we nearly wiped them out. You know, so which is which is scary because you know that's the that's your Herman Melville moment when you go, oh, I'm the most dangerous thing in this environment, right? Right. right. I I mean, I, uh, I am a Moby Moby Dick isn't my favorite book I've ever read, but I think it is the best book ever written, um, especially as an American who likes American novels. And I I, I came back to Melville a lot in thinking about this, just that there is this tie-in between the the hunt for the whale and I, I think there are parallels probably between whale and buffalo if I really want to get back into my college literature pedantics but you you said like in doing some research for this you sort of started to hit at this adaptability things like that there used to be an unbelievable amount of buffalo in this country and I saw figures from like 50 million up to 75 million before European settlers. I saw one number that went as high as 100 million. And then there were like none as of the last century. Uh, that's, and you, said, you mentioned adaptability. Um, how, do you, how did you explore that sort of history and the the wild swings in numbers that the buffalo as or the bison as a species has gone through. Well, you know, I didn't, I, I did a lot of, I did a lot of reading of, of first of all, like just biology, <laughs> biology <laughs> abstracts, yeah, and uh, which are really interesting actually, once you sort of learn to navigate around them. And I did a lot of, I did a ton of reading uh, about the sort of history of the, you know, the Native American conflicts with the United States government, because that's that that it's really sad how that happened. Mm-hmm. And that's a deep understatement. It's also sad what a in it's also sad, but slightly heartening how many of those people who were involved in it later turned around and became uh, serious advocates for conservation. Um, it, it's. Winston Churchill said that, you know, Americans would have been, would do the right thing only after they had exhausted every other choice. And, <laughs> right, right. And that's, you know, that's ultimately, I think, what we have sort of done 
with bison, you know, and there's mm. still things like, like there's a, to get super wonky, you know, brucellosis, I think is how you pronounce it. It's a, a disease that, that makes, uh, the bison a real bugbear and a point of contention for cattle ranchers out West. And that's by the way, still very much a thing, you know, ranchers right. are, ranchers are a large economic party out West because you know, there's really not many people in those states. There's not mm. many people in Montana. There's not many people in Wyoming, especially. Wyoming's our most sparsely populated state. You know, if you don't like people, move to Wyoming. Right. Right. You know, the only problem is that the people in Wyoming don't like people either. So, you know, you're you're increasing the number by one. You're a problem. Right. But ranchers, you know, ranchers and ranchers still get bison who escape, you know, Yellowstone killed every year. Uh, that's the policy because they don't want them to get brucellosis, even though brucellosis as a disease, you know, there's been very, there's been very few cases of transmission between them. They'll say, well, that's because of hunting and most, and there are people who say, um, you know, activists and, and biologists who say, you know, no, there's actually no evidence that they, that they produce this. So this is still a conflict that's like still going on. Right. Yeah. Um, and, but in doing that, like I, I have a habit of, of, if I'm going to write longer essays, I, I don't, I just kind of let things sit and congeal, right? Mm -hmm. Because I'll, because if I, if I'm interested in something, it's generally because I think I've made a connection. Um, I'm never really interested in something strictly for its own value, right? I'm usually interested in attaching it to something else because, you know, that's, that's how my brain works. I, you know, you have to, like, I, I try to see things in context and see them as parties to multiple forces, whatever I'm looking at. And in this case, this was a, I think, you know, it was close to football season. So I was already thinking about that. And B, um, it was something I was always fascinated with and C it ties into a lot of the threads that, that I've always found fascinating, which is, yeah, us doing the right thing, but only after we've done like, you know, 70 horrible things. Right. Right. Which like what a low bar for human behavior that is. If America is an example of anything in the world that, that you know, we get we, we'll get it really, really wrong and then we'll eventually do the right thing. I'm like, well, what's God like if that's good, then then what's everything else? And also because this was uh, sorry, I'll finish my sentence. Um, and also because this was this is a very this is a very powerful symbol. Yes. It means a lot of things. Yes. It means a lot of things to a lot of people, and you can hang a lot on it without necessarily saying, "This is my thesis." A equals B. I didn't want that. I, I don't. I wanted people to kind of be put in the space where they can, where they would float, and they would get to a certain point, and they would see, they would see, a, they would see an image. And they would see that image in relief against a lot of others, and they could sort of come to their own conclusions. Like, I, you know, like I did that piece on the NFL this year, and that's something where I definitely have an argumentative and rhetorical. That's a more right? personal like, piece, or that that has a more personal voice to it as well. Like in the writing, yeah, right. Like, there's no, there's no, there's no specific answer. Mm -hmm. You know, this is not the, like there, there are no questions here. It's, it's more a description of, it's more, of a, it's more of a moment to sort of take a snapshot, make it really good and sort of think about what this extremely loaded thing means in a certain context. Now a reading from Blood Meridian or The Evening Redness in the West, by Cormac McCarthy. Chapter 23 
It was an old hunter in camp, and the hunter shared tobacco with him and told him of the buffalo and the stands he'd made against them. Laid up in a sag on some rise with the dead animals scattered over the grounds and the herd beginning to mill, and the rifle barrel so hot the wiping patches sizzled in the bore, and the animals by the thousands and tens of thousands, and the hides pegged out over actual square miles of ground, and the teams of skinners spelling one another around the clock, and the shooting and shooting weeks and months till the boar shot slick and the stock shot loose at the tang, and their shoulders were yellow and blue to the elbow, and the tandem wagons groaned away over the prairie, twenty and twenty-two ox teams, and the flint hides by the ton and hundred ton, and the meat rotting on the ground, and the air whining with flies, and the buzzards and ravens, and the night a horror of snarling and feeding with the wolves half-crazed and wallowing in the carrion. I seen Studebaker wagons with six and eight ox teams headed out for the grounds, not hauling a thing but lead, just pure galena, tons of it. On this ground alone, between the Arkansas River and the Concho, there were eight million carcasses, for that's how many hides reached the railhead. Two years ago, we pulled out for gr- two years ago, we pulled out from Griffin for a last hunt. We ransacked the country. Six weeks. Finally found a herd of eight animals. We killed them and come in. They're gone. Every one of them that God ever made is gone as if they'd never been at all. The ragged sparks blew down the wind. The prairie about them lay silent. Beyond the fire, it was cold, and the night was clear, and the stars were falling. The old hunter pulled his blanket about him. I wonder if there's other worlds like this, he said, or if this is the only one. Well, you just described your writing, and I noted, like, I have my copy of Blood Meridian with me for this interview, and I read the the chapter where he sits down with the buffalo hunter last night and things like that. You referenced Blood Meridian, but, like, there's no quotes or anything like that. So I, I noticed exactly what you're saying about your voice and how you approach this, and that brings me to what – look, if so if the the American bison was the metaphor or symbol for – violence and manifest destiny and football and it's all wrapped up i think the most interesting thing that you found and i'm glad you did this instead of writing more crap about blood meridian was the family of green trice born a slave became a buffalo hunter and then his son jack trice how did did you know about them before starting this and yeah, like, that's okay. that, that's that's another thing that I kind of that I brought into it and I'd wanted to write about for a while. So that's the what minute, makes the, look, that's why I'm still here in December talking to you about this essay. Like the buffalo, the bison is a beautiful animal. Animal is an American symbol. But when you start to dig into, oh, cr- look, here's all of our most terrible history. Like we checked all the boxes, like slavery, the Indian Wars. You know, like this is good stuff, man. Let's just let's get it all out there. So, yeah, and it was, it was like looking at it. If when I had this shot, you know, when I when I thought I was going, when I thought about Jack Trice, because that was actually my first idea for writing the opener. Was I thought, well, I've always wanted to write about Jack Trice, mm-hmm. you know, because Jack Trice ties together a lot of nasty threads, um, you know, and a couple of good ones that 
are always present if you're watching college football, mm-hmm. you know, because this sport, you know, people, I don't want to trash baseball writing too much, but you know, <laughs> baseball has this like assumed spot at the mantle of American historical historical sports analysis. And I, I've never seen it that way because yeah, it's there, but, but, but baseball, you know, baseball isn't football and football is the sport that, you know, football is a sport that even now, you know, I think, you know, it's the one that has a day, right, you know, right, right, right. In every community, you know, in fact, in some communities it has several days, you yeah. know, in Louisiana, Texas, it's got three mm-hmm. and it has, and it has a day in, you know, states and in places that are generally in between. So mm-hmm. if you wanted to understand anything at all about the rest of the country, then yeah, you'd be really interested in football and in kind of the politics around it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if you wanted to understand the Northeast, I think it's fine to talk about baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it doesn't spread beyond that. You know, there's a few spots in big city, Chicago, LA, um, you know, maybe Kansas city right? and, and a couple of spots. St. Louis can have it if they want it. Right. But, but overall, you know, and there are a few inversions on that. Like the Braves are actually kind of this, like, you know, like as a fan base, they are definitely not what say the Mets fan base would be. It's just mm-hmm. not like culturally, it's very different. You know, I don't want to slag on it too hard, but um, I, I always thought I wanted a shot to sort of tie all these things in and write about a case like Jack Trice, you know, where this guy, like most people don't know who that's the state, who the stadium's named for, you know, most people don't know like what Roland Garros, like Roland Garros in Paris. They don't know the story behind how, you know, that got its name. Roland Garros, Roland Garros, you know, wasn't really anything tennis wise. You know, he's a guy who played at the, he's a guy who played at the club. Oh, okay. Yeah. And he was, he ended up, um, he ended up getting shot down during world war one and, um, and died. You know, he actually, he actually had like a spectacular death. He mm. drove into he drove his plane into a zeppelin. Wow. wow! Yeah, he died. He died in the first air battle ever. Huh. And he was, you know, he was like a bro at the he was a bro at the club. So they yeah. named the they named it after him. Right. Yeah. And, uh, uh, yeah. And that, well, and so getting to that, like I've worked around football my whole life. I grew up in the Midwest. I followed. I'm sorry. The big I'm time. sorry. Actually. This is uh, one more thing about Garros. Oh, yeah. He was a total badass. He survived that. I got that wrong. Oh. He survived that, and he ended up getting shot down. Uh, he ended up getting shot down four years later. Jesus, right? So he lived another four years before he could. Get oh shot yeah, down like, again? like yeah, like he escaped from a POW camp. He had like a he had an insane life. Um, That's awesome, you know, a short but insane life. And then they, uh, you know, he he played he played all the time while he was like a student. In Paris. So that's why they named it Roland Garros. It's not named after like a tennis great. Jack Trice Stadium isn't named after the greatest player uh, performance wise in Iowa history. It's named after, you know, uh, it's named after an African-American player who died there. That is a stunning history that I knew nothing about. Uh, And I mean, I grew up, like I said, like following Big Ten football in Ohio. Um, I mean, I know Iowa State is not Big Ten, but like I that was I could have found that out. How has that history gone so I don't know, it's is it niche? Is it regional? How do we not all know this name? I think it's something that, you know, when you and this is another sort of theme of the piece, right? That once you start pulling a thread, it doesn't really stop. Right. 
So I think for sanity's sake, sometimes you you have to cut it off. And you kind of had to do that when when looking at this piece. I had to say, okay, well, we'll frame it. You know, I got to a point and I said, okay, well, that's my frame. I can't really go past that. Right. Right. I think you can do this and you can do this with a lot of things. You know, um, for instance, like previous year's pieces, uh, I did one called Run and in it, in talking about the history of the Rose Bowl, the Rose Bowl is at the end of an old cattle road. Mm-hmm. You know, um, most people don't really know that. Um, you know, the the LSU Tigers, you know, the LSU Tigers, that's a, that's a Civil War name. You know, uh. it's that's where they, you know, it was, it was the name of the unit. In fact, that's that's like a, a pretty common thread when you get to the names of SEC teams. You know, the volunteers were from the War of 1812. Right. That's where they... That's where they got their name. You know, there's a lot of things like that. With Trice, Trice was the matter of a long and steady advocacy for his memory on the part of Iowa students, Iowa State students. That was that was their thing. And mm-hmm. to and you know, it, it took years, it took a really long time to to get the stadium named after him, you know. Mm-hmm. And now it's a point of pride. And that's that's a cool that's thing. A, that, damn right. That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's cool that you know after after years of okay, remember this person, remember this person, remember this person. When it turns, it suddenly becomes a genuine point of pride mm-hmm. for the university and for a small place too. You know, it's not like Iowa. It's not like you know Iowa State's Penn State. Right. It's not like Iowa State is you know Ohio State. You know, though they're just a little outpost in Iowa that has managed to kind of cling to FBS status. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and and yet they have something which I think is outsized in terms of its you know like historical like tribute to history recognition of sacrifice you know like that's i think it's hard to do that because it's it's not as easy as saying okay this guy was a great player you go no something really bad happened here but you know we will do our best to pay tribute and make you know make a testament of it you know to Mm -hmm. somebody like jack trice's letter before that he writes um to himself before the game uh, that they play against minnesota is is heart-rending it's mm-hmm. it's a voice you know you can hear him when he does it uh, and that's not totally common you know like historical letters sometimes you go man this just seems like an alien writing you know right, no, right, this right. Is, you know like that's <laughs> it's not all the letter to Sol- from Sullivan Ballou like that's not it doesn't all sound as beautiful and poetic sometimes it just sounds like a guy complaint like I have letters from my great great grandfather and he's you know it's, he sounds he's basically complaining about how scratchy and bad their underwear is right where he's working <laughs> right. you know that's you know that's relatable sure it's just not you know you're not like wow such transcendent thoughts no that's not what history has to be right but but that was you know I there's a lot of stuff like that I wanted to get to trice through that and I also wanted to um, you know, when you write about college football, you have to write about inequalities. And that's kind of another theme here, you know, not only inequalities, but a lot of the collateral damage that happens along the way just through simple processes, you know, like Jack Trice gets involved in this system, uh, which is a system born of violence and dependent on violence, you know, and that's I'm talking about football. This is before we ever talk about America. Well, and, so. I'd like to, if I can stop you right there, I have a passage up that I loved, and this is going to be from two paragraphs, but I want to read this back to you and ask you about it. The violence at the heart of football is the thing that will eventually kill it. It's in the bones and marrow of the sport and has been forever, and fatalism in the face of it or mitigating it by degrees of manner or ritual or rule is a dodge. 
skipping ahead. The scariest part of thinking about the inherent violence of football, America's most popular sport even now, is that it's just a sliver of something huge and more monstrous and inescapable. That being an accomplice is a fact of being American. And, I mean, I have spent a long time thinking about my own personal relationship to football, Spencer, and I think you nailed it. And that violence... um. What do you let me just ask a sports question like where how does football move along and when will we like we're the odds go up every weekend that or the odds are there every weekend that we're going to see someone die on a field. And when that happens, our relationship to the sport and watching it on television will be forever changed. Um, how do you foresee that happening? I don't see it changing until, of course, something terrible happens mm-hmm. on the field. I don't know if it's – I mean, it's obviously not paralysis because that's happened. Yep. Right. Um, I, I don't think it's – We're almost scan- immune to that in a bizarre way. I Yeah, I don't think it's scandal mm-hmm. because what what more do you want? Mm-hmm. We've – there's <laughs> – like, I, I, I'm out of ideas. The most sinister – ideas i could imagine are true so (laughs) scandal's not going to interrupt it right Mm -hmm. and so where are where are we at you know i i don't i think it it has to be something worse than i can imagine which reality is pretty good at coming up with so um so it'll probably happen Mm -hmm. I, i think in order for the sport to survive, it has to become something less violent. Mm-hmm. You know, it has to become something less force heavy. You know, we have an M and an A and it equals the F. Right. So <laughs> we have to reduce, we're not going to reduce the acceleration. And People mass just fa- keeps going up. And mass just keeps going up, which is a recipe for disaster, mm-hmm. you know. And the game as it's played at the highest levels is is more dependent on that than even college football. Mm-hmm. So what do you do? You know, we have to reduce impact on every play. So mm-hmm. and and this includes like subconcussive hits. That's one thing that linemen will tell you is, you know, like the, the overall effect of of the game's low impact hits. We're considered low impact. They're not. If you played line right, or you know right. been hit it, they're not it's every single play that car crash effect you know it, it adds up over time mm-hmm. even if you're just bumping fenders like linemen do mm-hmm. so what do you do to reduce that you know like you you either evolve into a different looking animal that's not really an option for you or you change the game so it's going to have to become something less contact dependent and everyone will complain and everyone will scream except for parents because right. you know parents don't want their kids playing the game mm-hmm. because even at the middle school and high school level you know there's evidence that yeah it adds up you yeah. know there are you, there are definite brain changes that occur when you get hit in the head a lot mm-hmm. and you know the NFL will become something if they don't do that the NFL will become something more on the par with professional boxing you know it'll become um this this probably still lucrative but but definitely less mainstream sport and they don't want that you know uh, right now the nfl is in a complete state of denial about this you know they're not going to lead and by the way like you shouldn't count on them to do that 
they won't. There's too much money involved for people to be human. You know, Roger Goodell can't be human about this, and he can't do the right thing. There's too much money. He's he's paralyzed by it. You right. Know? Uh, that, like if if he, if he were like an actual, you know, if he were an outstanding human being, he would never be in this position, and he would attempt to change the game from the top, and he would lose because he represents the interests of the owners, and you know they're too moneyed to think any way. Right? They've become their own assets. Right. Being rich, being rich and being rich does very weird things to a lot of people's brains. And a lot of times it just turns them into vectors for capital behavior, you know, where they're not. It's people say, oh, man, you know, they're just playing their own interests. No, they're playing their money's interests, which like they've become their money. That's that's a very and I don't think that's true of every person who becomes well off. But, you know, look at the NFL. They've become their money. What they are as, you know, as actors is something really really not tied to uh, human interests at all right I, I think i had this conversation with someone last week and i said basically I, the the more the nfl goes this route where you see more and more there's like oh i'm not actually rooting for players i'm rooting for 32 plutocrats to kind of move assets around and not just players but teams and stadiums and airtime and broadcast packages and things like that the the more that gets exposed the the tougher a watch and interest it is and that brings me to your second article of the fall that i wanted to discuss which was why nfl tv ratings are down and why you don't have to care uh published two months after the buffalo piece on november 2nd i think you hit a lot of that and it seems that the NFL is probably more concerned with their ratings being down than how to remake the league in a way to make it less violent and or dangerous or lethal, potentially. Um, the NFL is content in the same way that my, as you put it on your own personal examples, but my I don't watch Game of Thrones. My wife watches Game of Thrones. I sit in the room because we live in a small apartment in Brooklyn and my son is sleeping in the next room. And I watch Game of Thrones as a radio drama. I am usually emailing or reading or doing a crossword puzzle and waiting for it to end so I can watch Veep. And yet I can talk about Thrones to anybody who wants to. And the NFL, as you point out, has slipped into that. It has become water cooler conversation. So why does it seem they're more concerned about that than the potentially deadly violence inherent to the game? I, you know, for, for me, I, like when you consider the problem of the NFL, like that piece is, is, you know, diagnosing a a particular media behavior, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I mean like that. So I've taken this year off from actively following the NFL. My job changed. I didn't have to, and it changed my entire relationship to it in a way that you're addressing where it's like, I don't have to watch four games on a Sunday and yet my life doesn't feel any less fulfilled. In fact, when I do sit down to watch the one game I might care about, or I'm in a bar and there's a good game on, I was like, Oh, I enjoy this more by doing it less. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's true of a lot of things. And the NFL of course will give you more people have said, Oh, well the NFL's, you know, spread itself thin. Yeah. I think that's, 
true to some extent. People compartmentalize and reserve Sunday for this. And then when it pops up other places, they're just not going to pay as much attention to it. Mm-hmm. And and I think that goes for for Monday night football as well. The you know, that's one reason Sunday night football has been. Uh, less affected by this it's on the day that people generally reserve for it you know mm. um in terms of like what the nfl can do you know i don't think you should count on the nfl to do anything that's not you know it's not in their dna it's not in their behavior mm. to to fix anything they're at this stage in their life cycle as a corporation where they're not going to think of anything new or cool because that's a waste of their time shoring up everything that they have right now ensures that they get buckets of cash even if that's <laughs> one less bucket on the barge every year they won't care this is legacy wealth and legacy wealth is just big and sluggish and doesn't really do anything other than prevent competition Mm -hmm. you know i'm uh like you get real close into some like like marxist theory when you talk about you know (laughs) and, and like firm theory when you talk about you know how the nfl behaves but it's pretty accurate the, nothing in football is going to get fixed from the outside this has to get fixed at like the the high school middle school you know level there's nothing in this game that will come from the top so anyone who loves it is on their own to fix it because i i love that violence you know yeah. i'm complicit in it but i also know that if i want it to if i want it to succeed then I have to let certain elements of it go. It's got to reform itself. You know, mm-hmm. you can't have linemen crashing each other every single play. It has to become, and I think for its own benefit as for viewing too, it has to become a game of athleticism and speed yeah. more than power. It, it, you know, it cannot like power running is, is thrilling. You know, watching somebody get lit up on a hit is thrilling. Yeah. I don't think there's any reason that it should be legal to have a safety hanging back. It really shouldn't. It right. shouldn't be like even bump and run, like, you know, bump and run coverage, and you know, smashing into somebody at the line. Even that, that's probably going to get taken down over the next 20 to 30 years in terms of the evolution of the sport. It's got to become something way more like basketball on grass. And to be honest, it, it probably won't be as popular. Yeah. You know, it's it's going to have us it's going to have a slide down in terms of like your socioeconomic strata in terms of who plays it if you don't do that. Right. Like I think it will become, you know, colleges will eventually like I, I think colleges, they'll eventually just spin off to be like minor league franchises. It'll look a lot like, you know, ideally if things like happen the right way, you know, it'd look a lot like the British soccer system. You know, where you just or you know, international soccer system where you have a lot of big teams, you know, like Galatasaray mm-hmm. um, in, in Turkey, et cetera, who started as these teams that were, you know, adjunct. They were uh, attached to the school and then they're kind of like loosely affiliated with the school. And now they just have the name. Right. Like right, they're just right, right. like it's just it, these things will float away from the institutions that bore them um, like they have to, you know, over time because everything else is just retrenchment. And I think there's going to be some court cases that hopefully will will, you know, speed up that process. In terms of how the game is played, you know, the NFL likes to think they have ownership of football. Um, they'll buy into whatever saves their asses and mm-hmm. uh, because they need that money. You know, like I said, at this point, they're a content company and their content is becoming not only dull, but it's becoming uh, physically noxious to the viewer and to the people playing it and harmful. Right. So, right. what you know, what do you do? How long do you watch that? Yeah, no, you're 100% correct. And it's like, as a viewer, I've become, I'm bored to tears of concussion stories. And so anybody who wants to do a big expose on concussions, like, I I get it. Like, we got to move this forward. But at the same time, watching the game, 
at its worst can feel ghoulish at times. And, you know, like devolving into competitive coal mining where people are trying to increase their socioeconomic strata by playing this game and making money they never could have made and finding a thrill. But you're killing yourself for my enjoyment. And so so that brings us back to the American bison – um, which once numbered in the tens of millions was almost extinct and now seems to have found its niche. Um, any final thoughts on the bison before we wrap this very lengthy conversation up? Thank you for all your time. Uh, no problem. I, I, I hope if somebody reads it, you know, and, and enjoy it, they might read it and think it's crap. That's cool. It's the internet. You know, you can go read something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of things to read, man. Um, you know, but if they read it, you know, I, I wanted it to be, you know, cause I do feel like ultimately, you know, uh, football is doomed and mm-hmm. it won't be, it, it won't be like a lot of, a lot of things that come into contact with, uh, with America, a lot of things that come into contact with the United States, mm-hmm. you know, this is the result I would like to see. It's kind of, I think if there was anything in there, I would say that, you know, the future of football could be grim. Uh, you know, and that a lot of, a lot of futures might be grim, um, and that you could ultimately do the right thing, you know, like conservation is hard, but a lot of the people who try to save things and who end up saving them in one form or another, a lot of those people, um, a lot of those people started on the demolition side, you know, Mm -hmm. they started on the, they started on the side of the oppressor. They started on the side of the hunter, you Mm -hmm. know, and I think those people are, you know, I, I think it's important, you know, like at least, and I'll limit it to this, right? Um, football has to save itself. You don't want an outside influence coming in because if they do, it's going to be in the form of litigation or it's right. going to be in the form of, uh, it's going to be in the form of parents turning away from it on an individual basis, but in large numbers. Mm-hmm. You, do, you don't want that. What you want to do is you want to have some form of the game that's going to be able to survive. Because I, I do think, you know, like I, I think the reactionary, uh, this isn't a short answer, but you know, this isn't a podcast for short answers, right? No, no, it, 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 but it also gets back to the point you made or Churchill's point from earlier, like football needs to exhaust all other options. And I think we're watching it do that to figure out how to do something right. Right. So. And this is a, this is a common refrain. A lot of the people who, you know, object to any reform of the game or object to any changes in the game, put things in either this kind of, you know, a a sort of a reactionary or, you know, sort of a willingly ignorant, like a Danny Cannell. I didn't want to mention Danny Cannell. All right, everybody put on your turtlenecks. It's very good for Danny. It's very good for people like Danny Cannell to say that there's a war on football because it, plays into this certain key of rhetoric that gets, you know, it's hive kicking, right? Like mm. they're trying to change your life, you know, mm. kick, kick the beehive, right? Get the right. bees mad. Everybody runs away. And pretty soon we just, you know, pretty soon you vacated the area. You can't let that happen. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I think people like Danny Cannell are super important to this because once you get past the, the brand positive rhetoric, right. Mm-hmm. That, that turns you into the contrarian or conservative on the docket. You still have to realize you fixed nothing, <laughs> right? Right. Right. You fixed. You've you fixed absolutely nothing. And you know, for something as small as football, in terms of like you know the global concern, 
if it's this small and it's just a game, okay, cool. You have to alter it. It shouldn't mm. cost that much to you to do it. You know, mm. you shouldn't demand an overwhelming amount of evidence when frankly, if you go into a game and say, you know, I think this hit that knocks somebody unconscious, it's probably not a positive for the growth of the sport. <laughs> you know, like right, people right. aren't like you say, Oh, the violence teaches things. I'm like, there's a lot of things football teaches that aren't dependent on brain bruising violence right. at all. Right. Like that's, it's the weirdest contrast to me and contradiction in like football fan thinking is that this is the sport of the interior of the country. It is the sport of self-described individualist. It is my favorite sport mm. probably always will be. And yet it is the sport where individual concerns are among the last because right. it is always about the team or I think more often it's about what I think should happen, right? It's right. about the way we're all on this same page and it is the way and it is the way things are done. And I think that's what makes reform harder, right? Mm -hmm. In the NBA, you know, like, you know, you, if, if something like this happened in the NBA where there's only five players, uh, for a team at any given point on the court and you have a very small roster total mm -hmm. and you have a very small number of people who can do it, you know, this, this would have, we, we would have, fix these issues the game would have completely changed you know 15 years ago right 20 20 years ago but because of the general ethos of like the way football works mm -hmm. th that's not you know so like that's that's the amazing thing to me is that it's going to take that long because it's tied into so many other things both politically and culturally to change mm -hmm. and structurally because you know you just have 22 guys on a team right. people are literally worth less than they are on a, on a basketball team. Yeah, 100%. Any final thoughts on the American Bison and what we should, what uh, our listeners should note and appreciate about that? Um, well, one that, uh, one that uh, you should look around you because they're actually everywhere. <laughs> there's, uh, there's a couple on the way to my folks' house, just south of Nashville, just mm -hmm. chilling in a chilling in a pasture off I-65. There's a pretty large herd in North Carolina, um, you know. And uh, if you are of the meat eating type and you're cool with that, you know, I, I would I would encourage you to eat them. I know that's odd considering I think they're like beautiful and totally worthy of conservation. They're also a product, and uh, <laughs> one of the best ways to ensure their survival is that you know they got to make more of them. So. Yep. I would encourage that. And if you haven't gotten out West, um, you know, try to go out and see them in what would be as close to their native environment as you could get. You know, um, if you can go up to Calgary, if you can go to Montana, um, they are, they're stunning. And so is the rest of the West, man. I, like I took way too long to get out West and just drive around and see stuff. Um, it'll kind of change your headspace. And that's an extremely hippie way of saying things, but here we are. Uh, it, it probably makes you a little more American. In, so, in a lot of ways, so I would, I would, I would hope, I would hope the positive ways. Yeah, uh, Spencer, thank you very much. That was probably one of my favorite conversations I've had in doing this podcast, and uh, I mean it sincerely. I've loved your writing this fall, so keep it up. And um, yeah, thanks again. Oh, wait, one more thing. That essay. <laughs> if somebody would like my final thoughts on it, yeah, that essay started uh, like the whole Buffalo thing started with a David Voynarovich photograph in 1991. Oh, saw, oh is, it the, is that the photo of them all going over the cliff? Yep. Yeah, no, he's an exceptional artist. And uh, for anyone who doesn't know, he was gay, New York, was a teenage runaway, living on the streets in New York, got AIDS, 
did some really powerful political work. Uh, I think there's a uh, this boy um, is probably his best known piece, but that is a really cool inspiration for uh, this whole conversation, that long form, and the, wow, that is awesome. Yeah. So in case you wonder, like you know, sometimes like how long an idea has to percolate. 25 years <laughs> yeah 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 that's this this essay that that essay cooked for about 25 years that's exceptional you can't uh well that is a perfect end note let's go over the cliff with that uh spencer thank you so much that was that was a great conversation honestly as someone who's worked most of my professional life around football and after becoming a parent five years ago has really started to dig into the moral compromise of our chosen sport um, I think you're doing great work on that topic and it's hard and there are not a lot of easy answers and I'm sure it's not always what people want to read, but I salute you. So continue doing it. All right. Thanks, man. This is a pleasure. So, that was that interview. It was very long. It was uh, probably more about sports than we normally do, but I don't know. I couldn't avoid it. And we all, and basically Adam, especially you, I, I gear this too, but Joe Reed as well. Look, we all work in sports. We all specifically work in football or have worked in football. I mean, Joe, I've seen pictures of you at the big 10 championship game. Adam, you used to work for the Packers I work for the NFL on CBS. I've worked for the Patriots. Um, football is a part of our lives. And would you describe it as a game you love? Adam, I'll start with you. Uh, yes, I love the game. Well, if we're talking purely, the, we're not talking about the NFL or... The game of football, the sport. Yeah, it's a game I love. Okay, Joe? I would not describe it as a game I love. I would not. The game, the sport of football, I would not describe as a game I love. And why is that? Um, I think uh, we can get into this because um, it was sort of addressed in the interview, but like how I love, I, I, I almost said I love, I really enjoy, I like watching college football. Like that's one of my favorite sports to watch. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is because of, um, you know, in the United States, sort of the affiliation that you have with your university. Like I am not, you're a Michigan uh, man, right? I, I did go to the university of Michigan. So yeah. I am a Wolverine, but like I support the Chicago bears. It's like, it's sort of this identity thing. Yeah. Um, and last night I watched like one of the best football games I've seen in, I don't know how long USC versus Penn state in the Rose yep. bowl. Yes, sir. It was unbelievable. And yeah. I haven't watched any NFL pretty much entire season. I might watch the playoffs. I don't know. So to me, it's like, I think I'm drawn to college football for other reasons than the sport. Mm -hmm. I like the, the rivalries, sort of the identity, the, um, just sort of the spectacle of it. But the game itself, I think is, is not the thing that I'm most focused on when I watch, if that makes sense. No, it, it absolutely does. It's interesting. So I'm someone, I got into sports or into media and into television through football and through working for the Patriots. And so like, to me, 
you know, football is something I've done and worked around for the last decade. And, you know, if I were to never work on it again on my deathbed at age 80 or whatever, I would still say that football played a huge part in my life. But like a lot of people in the last year or so, I've gone through a bit of a struggle with it. And what I find is I love the sport. And I actually, and Adam, I think you do a better job of talking about this. Like I love the people who play the sport. And I don't think a lot of those guys anymore under any delusions about what they're getting into by playing football. But the more it goes on and the more we learn about it, there is a ghoulishness to the violence of the game that I'm like, you guys can play it and I hope you have a great productive career, but I need to be less invested in it. I, I just need less of that sort of violence in my life. Um, personally, your thoughts guys, Adam, I'll start with you. Yeah. I have a really hard time with it. Um, because as much as you enjoy, as much as I enjoy the hard hits and the physicality of the sport, mm-hmm. um, I equally have a hard time, uh, reconciling what it does to guys, people, uh, Working for the Green Bay Packers, people used to say, like, you must you must love alumni weekend to see all of those legends come back um, and in one place. And I actually found it to be the saddest weekend of the year mm-hmm. because you would see how uh, particularly with the safety standards of the times a lot of the, the guys in the, in the 50s and 60s played what it did to their bodies and what it did to them mentally. Um and although they seem genuinely happy to be back at Lambeau Field, you just wonder, is it, was it really worth the sacrifice of your quality of life um, to have played that game? And um, as, as someone who played the game poorly um, but got some mild enjoyment out of it, I, uh, I don't think that I would let my children play. Um, it's all an easy argument right now because I don't have – any children, but um, just seeing the physical toll that it takes on people is, is pretty disturbing. I am a trend that I do like seeing in football is guys like Patrick Willis, who at the height of his career totally um, says, I just don't want to do this anymore. And whether those reasons are um, that they don't love the game or that they realize they don't want to end up like um, some of their predecessors, uh, it is a trend I like. I think it's a trend that's probably hurting the yep. league. Um, but I don't really, I, I really do care more about those guys than I do about the the business of football. Even though I've, even though it's one I've profited from. Yeah, no, uh, Patrick Willis, Marshawn Lynch, DeBrickishaw Ferguson. I mean, the names are getting the list of names is getting long enough now that I think it's a trend in the game. And in the sport, and I agree with you, you're seeing a lot of players who play for shorter time. It's probably affecting the quality of play from an NFL standpoint. But as a fan, it makes me happier to see. Like, look, I don't want this to degenerate into ripping on football because I will give I think the NFL and guys and like the people who run college football, I think they lose sleep over this stuff. I At this point in time, I think they know that there are problems and I think they know that um, – to the point of the article in our conversation, like the odds are there that someone is, we're going to turn on the TV and someone's going to die sometime. And 
that's hard and that's hard from a viewership angle but I, 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 when I worked on Inside the NFL, Chris Collinsworth was talking about this, and he said he said this on air. I'm not not name dropping or anything like that. And somebody was like, "Would you let your kids play?" He's like, "I let my kids play, and I'd play again because I don't want to spend my life sitting on a couch avoiding risk." I loved right. that answer, and I think it's totally valid. And as long as you know what you're getting into going into it, go right ahead, and I'll watch as much as I can. But I can't watch as much as I used to, and that—that's where I'm at at this point. So, yeah, I, I, it's a really—it's—it's it's interesting debate because I think sometimes when we talk about the safety of football, we treat all of the, we treat these guys like they are slaves to the game and that they mm-hmm. have no other option, and so we need to make it as safe as possible or eliminate football together and give them other options. But there are equal amount of guys who know the risk that they're taking mm-hmm. um, and they love playing football. If you, you would have had to drag Ray Lewis off the field because he just loved the game that much or the, the famous story of Ronnie Lott chopping off his, um, his pinky, the tip so of his finger. Yeah. I don't think he was doing that because he wanted to show everyone how tough he was. Um, even though he gets credited as being the toughest guy ever for doing that. he, he did it because he wanted to play the game. So I, I respect the guy's right to uh, professionally to retire at 28 or 29. Mm-hmm. I respect those guys who uh, with all the science that's presented to them and they still want to play uh, into their thirties. Like we just saw from uh, Steve Smith, jr. Or senior who has yep. uh, taken some hellacious shots across the middle. If he wants to do that, he's more, he, he definitely has the right to do it. Uh, I know for, for myself and, and my family, uh, it, it just seems incre- to be an increasingly violent game despite the rules um, and equipment made to uh, help protect these players because, they're, because the evolution of the sport means guys are just getting bigger and stronger and faster. So a 250 guy, a 250-pound guy who runs a 4640 um, when he hits you, it's going to cause some damage, and you can't uh, you can't slow down the evolution <laughs> of the game. It's just the way it's it's just the way it's going. Yeah, it's funny that as we're learning more and more about this, and the leagues are trying to implement more and more safety precautions, it's coinciding with the time where they will mean they have to because they will mean less and less because the size and strength of the players is rendering all the precautions moot as they're being made. So, um, Joe Spencer Hall in this piece was arguing that there is a metaphorical connection an almost football spirit animal, if you will. And that is the Buffalo. What would you say is your football spirit animal? Or would you, what if you had to name another one, what animal would you choose? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Um, I might need a minute to think about that. Um, so if I had to name a, if I had to name my own. Yes. Um, oh my gosh. Can I come back to it? Adam, you have any thoughts? Um, yeah, probably, um, like a walrus. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
pretty <laughs> slow and plodding, but will surprise you with an occasional burst of ferociousness and athleticism. Tremendous answer. I like it. Yes. That's very good. Jeez Louise. Plus, you've got Andy Reid in the NFL, who I think <laughs> might be it was certainly a strong resemblance. Sure. So, yeah. It, it's funny. One thing I did like about this, and Joey, you're not off the hook. I, I by virtue of asking the question, will not be answering it. Um, also, letting myself off the hook. Uh, <laughs> as I was thinking about this, though, it's like, some of the uh, and I hate I don't want to make it sound like we're just ripping on football because I think that part of the reason this conversation means a lot to me is that this is a sport that has given us all something significant in our lives and that you know we can it's healthy to on occasion examine that relationship but like all the various horse metaphors that come up. And it's not just like you look at the game like Clydesdales or like he's a stud and things like that. You refer to things as a quarter, like the season is broken up into quarter poles or you're at the quarter pole. You hear that all the time, like week four of the NFL season. And it just like, man, there is it's kind of you don't want to think about that. But you're like, man, that I don't know. Sometimes these like I think part of the reason we started doing this show and the experience we've had it with athletes is to kind of say like these guys aren't horses. They aren't gladiators. They're guys. And we would do well to keep them as human beings. So. So, Joe, what do you. Well, uh, I'm still, I'm literally, as we're, I'm jotting down notes, I'm, I'm thinking of it in terms of like, I'm going backwards of like personality traits and then like mapping them onto what animal I think I would best fit. I'm going to keep thinking on it. All right. I'm curious to get your thoughts on, um, because there's been a lot of conversation about it in the last like week or so with all these bowl games circling is of like seniors or players who would likely go high in the draft sitting out their games. Um, it seems sort of like this towing the line of like um, this recognition of risk mm-hmm. and injury um, to save yourself for a larger payday for a higher, higher draft stock for a longer career in a league where you're only going to get hit harder. Um, yeah, yeah, but you, man, you it is. Guys have, I have thoughts. I have no problem with that. That first contract. I don't either. I don't either. But there's been, there's been a lot of criticism of like, you know, if you're going to sit out the bowl game, then you might as well sit out the whole season. Like why even play? And I, I find that interesting of where do you draw the line of like, okay, your seat, your season six and six, you know, you're, you're, you're four and six. You're probably not going to make a bowl game. Do you, but you're, an all-star running back, do you sit out the last like three weeks of the season to go higher in the draft? Like where does that line? I don't know. Where is that line? I guess they do it in the NFL for playoffs and whatnot, but I'm just curious to get your thoughts. I mean, Adam, you are a Buffalo, a Colorado Buffalo. That is. Um, what are your thoughts on this? I, I went to a D three school, so I have no allegiance to the college game. Well, interestingly enough, I uh, I went to a D2 school, University of uh, Southern Colorado, now Colorado State at Pueblo, and then my first job was at University of Colorado. So at at, at um, oh, University sorry. of yeah. Southern Colorado, we did not have a 
football team at the time. And so um, my first job was working for a, a college football team. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't have, I don't have any problem um, with a guy skipping his bowl game. I will agree with Nick Saban who said, Hey, you guys. And I, when he was referring to the media, you guys wanted a college uh, playoff system. It's really diminished the values of the other, the value of the other bowls. <laughs> and I think he's, he is a hundred percent correct there. Yep. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't have any problem with it. I think um, draft status is important. And because the NFL doesn't offer guaranteed contracts, um, a guy really has, if that is going to be his profession of choice, guy really needs to make sure he's picked in the highest spot possible to make the most amount of money possible because that year could be the only money he ever sees from the NFL if he has a catastrophic injury or if he simply doesn't make the cut and no longer is employed by the NFL. So um, if you said that contracts were, if a guy signed a rookie deal um, worth $30 million and he was going to get paid out all of that, you might look at the sum total of that contract and say, okay, well, you know, we're talking the difference between $25 million and $30 million over three years. But when you're really talking what a guy might make in one year, uh, because of the way professional football is currently set up. And by the way, I don't necessarily blame the NFL because there are, because it is such a, again, violent game. And uh, all it takes is one play for a guy to never be able to play again. Um, I don't really blame the NFL for the way they've set up the system. However, uh, I certainly don't blame a, a young person who wants to get started on their next vocation, make sure they can make as much money they can in that profession, and then hopefully move on to another profession. Uh, I agree. It's funny. Uh, I also agree with you, too. Like, guaranteed contracts in the NFL is one I have, I think about a lot. Like I would love to be able to do it, but the, the reality of injury in the league makes it tough. Um, and I can see both sides of it. I mean, yes, I know the NFL makes $10 billion a year, but it's a capitalist enterprise, but also because we are a capitalist system, every college player has the right to sit out a bowl game. If they think it preserves their, chances of making millions of dollars over paying playing for free and watching all the money go to a coach an athletic director and things like that so surely i'm just wondering i'm thinking about it now surely there's a way like you do like insurance premiums are calculated that you could sort of assess the risk of like different skill positions in the nfl and say like based on the risk here are how many here how many incidents that have resulted in like season ending or career ending injuries in a given point of someone's career, couldn't you sort of retroactively say like, we're willing to guarantee up to X number of dollars because you're a running back, um, you know, of this skill set? Wouldn't there be a way that you could sort of figure that out? Like, there is. And stop calling speaking, me Shirley. Is that? I mean, is that like? <laughs> is that that's got to be factored in, right? You would think so. That there's a smarter way to do it, but um. You asked the uh, good luck being the arbitrator between the NFL and NFL Players Association on that one. Oh, I can't. I agree imagine. that there should yeah. be a smarter way to do it, but I'm not sure how that yeah. works. Especially for a guy who's never played, is where it's all speculative. So, 
Yeah, it's true. I did play in fifth grade, but you know. Well, there it is. I mean, look, it is a <laughs> it is a sport that we it is a tough sport to love. I'll say that it, it is lovable, but you uh, there's a lot to wrestle with with the game of football. Switching topics, the everyone's favorite part of the show, probably including ours, distractions. Life is nothing but work and what you do to distract yourself from work, and especially as we go back this week from the holidays. What are some of the things that are distracting you? Adam, I will start with you. Uh, yes, there is a book. Um, I'm, the, the, again, I don't always present things that are mysterious passions i'm sure people have heard of this book because it is a number one bestseller um it is called the art of tidying up Mm -hmm. by a japanese specialist named marie kondo does that book bring you joy that's the one you're talking about um and i (laughs) although she says to do it all in one shot like your whole apartment in one shot which i agree with but I've realized would literally take me a week and a half and I'm not going to use my vacation that way. <laughs> um, I did take two straight days and I just started with clothes. And I am proud to say that waiting uh, to be picked up by the Salvation Army this Saturday, um, I have 14 bags of clothes. Holy cow. Which is two thirds of all the clothes I own and a large box of shoes. So, um, good for as you, man. Part of my New Year's resolution and being uh, more organized, not just for the sake of being organized, but to clear my brain for uh, more creative and productive things. Mm-hmm. All these clothes got to go. Boom. Well done. So, if you're if you're over six foot four and you're a Packers fan. <laughs> Got a lot of <laughs> you. All right, Chicago Land, you heard it. <laughs> Those are our new so. shirts for Just Not Sports. All of Adam's yeah. old clothes. I did find several that I couldn't find before as well. We do have five Just Not Sports t-shirts left, all in large sizes. So perfect if you for know that. how to reach us. Just ask. Yeah, we'll give it to you. Um, Joe Reed, what is your distraction? Mine is sort of a, it's kind of a vague thing. I I think I've actually, it's an actual distraction. It's been occupying my mind. I feel like most of our distractions are check out this new podcast or, Mm -hmm. Hey, I really like this book. And I think Adam is on point. My distraction has been, um, sort of like new year's resolutions in general or like things. I feel like there's been a huge attitude shift or, or sort of an emotional shift this year of like, man, it's already three days in like, how am I using my time efficiently or how am I? what creative projects should I have worked on instead of sitting on my ass and watching Netflix or yep. um, there's just this like, uh, you know, the, the utility of, of what you're working out, the way you use your time has been hyper. It's I, there's been a hyper focus in the last like three days. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's been like a frustrating distraction. I don't know if we've done like negative distractions before, but maybe I'll take a page out of Adam's book. Um, and just try and get organized, just, you know, write down a list of things that I want to accomplish. Um, I think the other thing I've thought about is there's this weird little thing in the back of my mind where it says, Oh, well it's the, now it's the third when we're taping this. Like I should have started something on the first. Cause that's like a nice clean date. I, I love everything you're saying right now. Cause I have thoughts go on. And 
there's, you know, I, t- I talked to a friend of mine. He wanted to start making these, this like little video series of his. And he's like, you know what? I think I'm going to wait till the new year. I was like, just do it now. It's Thanksgiving. Like, who cares when you start it? And then I don't right. afford that same luxury to myself of like, it's okay if it's middle of January. You can start exercising. It's yeah. it's not too late. So I think it's just constantly keeping that front and center um, and and to our past distractions of writing things down and and taking notes and staying organized. Um, so I, I think that's been just weighing on my mind. It's kind of a it's not a really tangible thing, but um, just kind of organizing all those thoughts has been distracting for me this year. Well, Joe, I love everything you said. Um, no, no, because so much of what you said, particularly about being hard on yourself, um, and just sort of some of the like self-flagellation that goes on there. Uh, I thought about this a lot cause it was, it was a year ago. I had really recently quit drinking and it was around the holidays. And I was like, this is kind of going to be hard. And I read this article on vice about advice to people who recently got sober on how to handle the holidays. And the last piece of advice was don't be too hard on yourself. Like if you need to sit there and eat an entire block of cheese to keep from drinking, eat that cheese, bro, get it done. (laughs) And so I I really liked that. And I thought about that this year around the holidays. And to that end, I thought about something that I talked about a lot in therapy, which was frankly that about being sad and like sitting with your full range of emotions. So to your point about like, can we do a negative distraction? Yes, because life has negative distractions as well as positive. And I think, and particularly my therapist pointed out, like women are much better at this than men. So I think as men, and Louis C.K. has talked about this a lot recently, like we should understand and try to sit with and not distract ourselves with our phones or things like that, our full range of emotion, not be afraid of sadness. And if there are those things that are negatively impacting us, Let's take a minute to understand them before we just push back against them. So I think your headspace is, uh, uh, I, I hear everything you're saying. You're, you're not wrong. And yeah. your final point is one I definitely embrace. So my distraction this week was going to be, and I've talked about writing things down. You just mentioned it. Every year, Steven Soderbergh keeps a log of every movie he watches. and. He's Steven Soderbergh, so he watches a lot of films. And so I just started on the first and wrote down all the media I've consumed. Um, In quitting drinking, a lot of people want to talk to you about that. Frankly, over the holidays, I was going to pitch like, I want to do a weekly segment on the pod. Like, so you've decided to stop drinking Um, because it's a conversation I have a lot. But it's pretty self-indulgent, and I'm not going to do that to our pod listeners. But what I will say is – The one piece of advice I give everyone is like, look, I'm not going to tell you to quit drinking. It's your call. It's up to you. The one thing I'll tell anyone, and I'm going to say it now to our billions of listeners, conceivably, is that it's always good to examine your consumption habits for anything. Drinking, drugs, food, porn, masturbating, whatever. You know what I mean? Like – Throw it all out there. And so I want to take some Twitter. Yeah, well, exactly. Exactly. So that's why I'm trying to keep a log for this year on the media I consume and to just understand more of that. Um, And to your final point about when do you start these things? I was thinking about shows like Saturday Night Live or, or Seinfeld. If you watch the pilots of those shows, 
they're virtually unrecognizable from the final product. Yeah. And I think that there's something to be gained there about do you have to start a resolution or some project or something on January 1st? Just just do something. Like write something down. Like write a note. And then think about coming back to it on the 8th or the 15th. None of these things are ever – they don't come out fully formed, you know? And so you just have to start somewhere. So I think you're absolutely right on all that, Joe. And I think if nothing else, the holidays are a good time to think through all that stuff. So, absolutely, yeah. it made me. Um, I was talking with my uh, with my fiance about. Um, oh, oh, that was a drop. Yeah, you said it, fiance. <laughs> Damn. Oh, yeah, Joe yeah. got engaged. So I got engaged over the holidays. Yeah, uh, Thanksgiving ish time. So it's exciting. Yeah. Um, a, we were talking about, oh God, I lost my train of thought, starting things, creative processes. We were talking about, oh my God, it just left me. Well, this is not good. you know what, Joe? We've started this conversation. <laughs> like so many things, we can come back to it later this year. We can. We can do that. All right. Well, let me. Um, any final shout outs? Any final shout outs? Um, I would say shout out. This is going to be past tense for everyone who had to do it. Uh, shout out to anyone who hosted people <laughs> for the holidays. Um, we were guests in my sister's house and it was awesome and it was fun being there. And we, I think we tried to help out as much as we could mm-hmm. and I felt like we were courteous and it was great. Awesome. And then we had guests over for new year's Eve and they were courteous and kind and lovely, but it was still just such a process of cleaning up and and preparing and hosting and you kind of put on your hosting face and it's cleaning up before just, and after and yeah, hundred percent and during, and are you okay? Yeah. And you know where the bathroom is and yada, yada, yada. And it's just such a, a, a task, not really a chore. People enjoy it, but I would just say shout out to anyone who, um, yeah, who, who went through that and was willing to have family or friends or whatever, um, know that it, you are appreciated. Yep. Good one. As someone who freeloaded off other people's hosting all the holidays, I would second that. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Spencer Hall. Look, um, we've interviewed some cool people on the show. We've done some fun things. Honestly, that was my favorite interview I've done on here. Um, It was just a nice, easy conversation. I'm fascinated by it. His thought process was interesting. And anyone who can drop a David Wojnarowicz reference on their way out the door Yo, that is a good interview. So, um, all right. And then Adam, any final shout outs? Uh, yeah, a few, uh, shout out to my boy, Uzi, Def Jeff, little Swanee, Meech, Ron Mack, and my other cousin Ron. Booty rappers, stay booty. Nice. Yeah, buddy. Stay booty. <laughs>